Father God, thank you for today. God, thank you for church and just that it's not pristine, God, that it's just your people together, family, God, in a community, God. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you include us on this awesome adventure, Lord, of seeing your kingdom grow in the earth, Jesus. Lord, I thank you that for each of us, you've called us on different paths, different callings, different adventures, Lord. And I just pray today, Lord, that whilst we learn about your word, God, we learn what you've got to share with us, how you are, God, that we'd also learn and get insight into our lives, God. Lord, that you would build us up, God, and that we would leave here today, God, with a bigger picture of who you are, Lord, excited about life lived in the gospel, Lord. In your great and awesome name, amen. Amen. More. Okay, so... We've been going through an act series for, for you guys who haven't been kind of regularly attending. That's what we've been, we've been going through. We took a little bit of a pivot and lately we've transitioned from Acts 13 into looking at Paul's um, missionary journeys. On his first journey, we're in the second missionary journey at the moment. He's just been in Philippi and it's in Philippi that remember he's kind of not really given a trial, chucked into prison, beaten and when he comes out, they suddenly realize he's a Roman citizen. They try and shoo him away quietly from the city, but he's having none of it. And we see about this importance of Roman citizenship. We see about, and that's what we spoke about last week, really, to do with the kind of our identity and our standing and our rights as citizens in the kingdom. And Paul and Silas and Timothy, they, they leave then and they go on. To Thessalonica. So today we're looking at Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. So that's the that's our title for today. It's very inventive and creative. Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. Okay, so I'm going to start and I'm going to read verses one to nine. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Little note, there probably wasn't. Like in Philippi, there was no synagogue. Uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, also probably no synagogues. So where there was a Jewish synagogue in Thessalonica. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from scriptures, from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to come, had to suffer, and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. It's like they paid bail to get out. So Paul starts by doing what he always does. What, what, what is his custom? Whenever he goes to a new place, he always goes to the synagogue first or tries to find, tries to find the, the Jews in the synagogue first. And that's what he does. He goes there, connects with the Jews. In Thessalonica, he stays with one of his relatives. He stays with Jason. We find out in Thessalonians that Jason's actually one of his kin. as a relative of Paul's. So when we look at this, the gospel spreading in the city, Paul's the one who's the main actor of this. But actually, ultimately, in Thessalonica, it's Jason 
who, who suffers for the sake of the gospel, and he's suffering there financially. So it says that, speaks about how Paul spends three Sabbaths there. So that's three Saturdays. He spends three Sabbaths there trying to convince the Jews, reasoning with the people in the synagogues, which would have been the Jews, some proselytes, so Gentiles who follow all the practices, or, and God-fearers, Gentiles who follow part of the practices, who would have been there. And it, Paul is there for three weeks in a row, reasoning with them, explaining to them from the scriptures the Messiah, that the Messiah had to suffer, that the Messiah was Jesus. And also, just to give you a bit of a picture of what's going on here, Paul isn't just kind of kicking back through the week, you know, having some hummus. What he's doing, he's working all through the week. He's making tents. He's, we read in Thessalonians how he says that, you know, I, I wasn't a burden on you guys. I, I, whilst I was there, I worked so that I'd be an example to you, so I wouldn't be a burden to you either. So Paul's working all this time, and the words getting out is probably preaching and sharing the gospel the whole time. Take note here, though, that what it says here, in these three weeks, he's explaining the Messiah. He's explaining the gospel. He's revealing Jesus to the Jews that are there from the scriptures. Well, the scriptures isn't the New Testament because it hadn't been written yet. You know, he hadn't even written Thessalonians at that point. So the scriptures, when it says that, it's the Old Testament. It's the books of the prophets. It's the books of the law. It's the Pentateuch. It's the whole of the Old Testament. See, people believe what he's saying about Jesus because of what it says in the Old Testament scriptures. So in that place, there are Jews, there are God-fearers coming to faith, people who know scripture, who are convinced because the scriptures tell of Jesus. But also the people that are there, uh, there's a whole bunch of idol worshippers there. Doesn't touch on it too much here in this account, but there, there's a lot of people who are idol worshippers who would have been hearing the gospel through the week. We know this because in the Thessalonians, Paul basically writes back to these, these idol-worshipping guys, and he says this to the church in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-9, it says this. It says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. This suffering is going to come just slightly later. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. The, the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and it's Achaia, 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 that's it. Um, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols, idol worshippers, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. See, we get a picture here of a people who are idol worshippers who receive the gospel and they do this complete 180 where it doesn't just become an insular little church thing, but the, the stuff they do, the life that they live impacts their region. It, it impacts in a way that everyone everywhere has heard of the faith of these guys, knows the faith of these guys. And they're experiencing persecution for it. So some of the Jews, kind of coming back to this core story here, we see some of the Jews becoming envious, becoming angry. Not all of them. 
but they don't receive the gospel. In part, on one hand, it's like an envy of Paul's ministry, and we see that throughout scripture, but also in another part, when we see this kind of thing rising, it's surrounding not accepting Gentiles coming to faith. They can't believe in this, the grace of God, that there's this opposition to the gospel, despite it being written across the pages of scripture. So Paul has seen throughout his ministry this same kind of thing. Remember, Pisidian Antioch, the same thing happened. Iconium, very likely, the same thing happened. The Jews rise up because they can't take that the Gentiles, these idol worshippers, can be coming to faith and accepted by God without actually, without needing to follow law, without doing anything. It changes their whole paradigm and they can't deal with it. So have got two groups of people, right? Jews, some who form a mob and attack them, some who accept the truth. Some see the truth of the gospel. Some are pursuing God's truth, looking at what's God doing here? Whereas some are more interested in their situation, their standing. They love religion. They like religion. They find their identity in that religious thing. That thing which gives them maybe meaning and purpose is more important than looking at what God is doing. See, their actions and words don't look like they're pursuing God. They, they don't exhibit that heart to discover what God is actually doing. And it, it leads them to raise this mob, attack the work of the gospel in the city. And ultimately, Jason bears the brunt of that attack. These guys, they completely miss what God wants to do. They miss the blessing that God can bring them because they're so focused on their agenda. They're so focused on what they're doing, on what they're seeking, rather than working out and thinking about, you know, what's God's agenda here? Is God doing a huge shift? What's God doing in our time? And so as people, we're living our visions, and we've spoke about the different things that we do, whether it's like a vision and we're we're actually doing some big initiative or we feel called into a different career or something like that. We're, 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 walking in this, we're walking in these things. We need to be making decisions, not just stand still. We need to be living life, moving forward. But at the same time, let's not miss what God wants to do in us and through us in the seasons that we're in or miss opportunities that God wants to open for us because we're inflexible over the situation. We're fixated on what we're doing. I've got to challenge myself in this always to be like, okay, this is not my thing. This is his thing. So God, what are you doing? What are you doing in Sai Kung this year in 2018? And sometimes God changes things. If we think about it, sometimes we can receive a word from God and so we start marching on that way, but we need to be listening to God in the here and now, in the present. If you think a great example is Abraham, what would have happened if Abraham hadn't been in a place of listening to God and just got the one message and said, right, I'm going to do it. And he did it and shut off until after he'd completed, right? He would have probably killed Isaac, wouldn't he? He wouldn't have stopped because he wouldn't have been listening. And so, guys, that's why it's so important to be regularly coming to God, putting that time aside to come and spend time with him. We've encouraged each other to be spending 30 minutes a day in the mornings just with the Holy Spirit, just spend time with him, listen to his heart for your life, for the present, for that day, for the here and now. So we have this persecution, this opposition that breaks out against the church in Thessalonica. 
And of these three churches we're going to look at today of Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, there's something interesting because at that, I mean, they all face persecution eventually, but in, in the moment, in their kind of birthing, Thessalonica is really the only one that faces this, this persecution. However, it's also the only one of them with this evidence of a church really impacting far and wide that's famed for its faith. So despite persecution, this church grows. And here's the thing, opposition, because what you guys are doing, maybe when you feel like you're trying to share with people and you're getting so much pushback, opposition to sharing the gospel or just to the things you feel God's calling you into. I know there's been times with church, I feel like, man, we're just hitting ourselves up against a brick wall. When you face opposition, it's not the end. In fact, with regard to the gospel, it's our new joy as believers. This kind of, and I'm going to go into this just a little bit, this suffering is a new joy we experience as believers, which before we, we don't, we can't get our heads around. So remember slightly earlier um, in, when I read the, the passage from Thessalonians, it says, for you welcomed the message in the midst of suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. This joy that we experience in suffering isn't, is actually a supernatural thing. In 1 Peter 4.13, it says, But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So what's kind of going on here? Because it it's a little bit of a strange one, isn't it? It's like, okay, well, let's all go and get crucified or something like that. And that's obviously so, that's, that's, not, that's not right. You know, it's not right to seek out, kind of seek out the suffering in a sense like, oh, wasn't that great? And we don't, we're not joyful for the, sake, for the sake of suffering itself. But, I mean, for us actually in Hong Kong, maybe it's just we get teased and slandered and ridiculed, but there's this joy in it. We're going to go in in a minute to look a little bit about suffering. So I was challenged the other day whilst I was speaking with the pastor who was sharing with me a little bit to do with, to, to do with actually most people find, unless they're living in a, a country where it's illegal to be a Christian, most people, especially in the West, find that they don't even begin to suffer until they start to witness. So let's look at this. See, just as Christ suffered for the gospel, we find a joy in Christ's suffering. So why is it that Jesus actually came? Why did he come? Jesus came, didn't he, to fulfill the good news, to, to, fulfill, to fulfill the old covenant, to become that new covenant, to reconnect us with God, that the gospel, the good news of God would come to mankind. He came to pay that legal penalty for sin over mankind so that we could be reconnected with the Father. So that our whole nature, which is separated from God, is now reunited with the Father. This gulf caused by sin that's so vast that no one could bridge through good works and efforts and all these things. He comes and he does. He dies for the sake of mankind. And this good news of God, the, the great news of God, the, the God and man reconnected together, we call it the gospel. See, he died to bring us back into that relationship. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. 
Jesus found a joy through his suffering, not for the sake of, whoopee, I'm going to go for like a load of pain on the cross, but the joy that was set before him wasn't, it wasn't the suffering that was his joy, it was you. It was you being brought back into relationship with him. It was the good news of God, the gospel, the evangelion. It was man and the father reconnected. See, when we share the gospel, when we share the good news of Jesus, we may suffer for it. We may be killed for it at the extreme end. We may be beaten for it. We may be put in prison for it. We may be ridiculed for it. And you see, our joy isn't in the suffering itself, but that some may be saved. The joy that we have there is sharing in that thing that of Christ, that Christ came to bring us the gospel, that some would be saved, that some would receive this good news, that they, that people, when you share, maybe people turn you down, maybe people say no, but actually, those that believe, that is all worth it, that there is a joy in bringing the gospel to people. Here's the map. <clears throat> so they've been up in, um, we're up here, I'm going to do my special finger puppet thing, we're up here in Philippi, they traveled down here to Thessalonica, there. And now they're going to head down the road to Berea. That word says Berea, by the way. So Paul and Silas, they're sent off by night. I like to put maps up because it gives you a bit of an idea of where all this stuff's happening, especially if you're quite spatial. So, you know, Jerusalem's down here. So you can see the gospel's really beginning to spread. So verses 10 to 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, as was his fashion. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with the instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So now they, the guys get to Berea, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It's all the gang. They arrive in Berea. They go to the synagogue again. It's how, where we kick everything off. But this time, everything's quite different. It's similar in as far as they're going into the New Testament scriptures. They're looking. They're really challenging things in scripture, but it's not the, it doesn't seem to be this argument, this, this kind of debate in that way. The Bereans have this noble character. They actually have a heart. They don't accept what Paul says at face value. They, they look at everything in great depth, but they have a heart to seek what God's doing. Not, they're not pursuing their own agenda in this. They've got a heart to see, oh, let's see what God's doing. And so it says they seek the scriptures every day, that they're pouring over the histories, they're pouring over the law books, they're pouring over the prophets. And from doing this deep study into the Old Testament, many of those guys believe. Many of them come to faith in the gospel. Many of them believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So just an encouragement, when you read the Old Testament, remember the Old Testament is about Jesus. Look for the gospel throughout the Old Testament. Look for Jesus. Jesus is concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. 
So these Bereans, they're, they're also, they're not against Greeks coming to faith. They're, they're not against Gentiles coming to faith. It says many prominent Greeks within that city did come to faith. These guys have a heart of pursuing what God is doing, not necessarily what their culture and their traditions and how they've always done it says. If you think about it, these guys are really, they're pretty religious guys. They're not like, oh yeah, that sounds cool, let's just go with that. They're devout Jews. These guys are men of the word, men of scripture. Think how hard it would be for some of the challenges of the gospel coming into their culture, their traditions. It's so challenging. And yet, you know, when the gospel comes in, it is challenging, but it changes everything and makes everything awesome. It's, it's this beautiful picture in Berea of people who love God more than their own stuff. It's pe- people who are receiving the gospel, receiving Christ, and then seeing Christ come into the life of that community. We then come to this point where the Thessalonian Jews suddenly find out maybe there's someone in Berea went and told them. Thessalonian Jews seem a bit more hot-headed and they, they're like, let's do another mob. So they send a load of people down there. They raise up the citizens and there's a whole load of unrest and it's unsafe. And they send Paul away to Athens. He's honored. They, they actually send people with him all the way there. And actually, if you look, it's, it's not exactly down the road. They send him out to the coast. Then he has to take the boat round to, round to Athens, which is this one just here. So... But they honor him and they set, and it's not cheap either, actually, this, this kind of stuff. It's like, you know, if you think about it, it's not, it's not like, oh, well, I'm sure that was cheap. These guys, what they're doing is costing, they're costing them some serious money. But Silas and Timothy stay behind. doesn't say exactly whether it was Paul insisting or quite how it happened. But if you think about Paul, Silas, Timothy, and this whole situation that Silas and Timothy have a big responsibility. There's this little baby shoot of a new forming church there. These guys who finally, some people who don't want to stone you, kill you, will actually listen to you. It's like, actually, this seems like quite a good place to, let's get a good church going here. This mission of going and preaching the gospel is a mission that Paul's been given by God, where, remember, he had the vision of Jesus and was knocked off the, knocked off the donkey on the road to Damascus. That This is his calling. This is his thing. And yet, he very easily goes away and leaves these guys to, to be in that place, to encourage the believers, to build up those believers. doesn't say, but very likely would have been putting some form of structure in place. We see that throughout all of his letters, where they put various pieces of structure of church in place. We see this more and more through Paul's life, where Paul gives more responsibility to different people. Where, you know, for Paul, it isn't about him. And it's not about his glory. And there can be a challenge in there for us. Can be for me within like ministry side of stuff. For you guys, maybe sometimes you have opportunities where you're in charge in a career. Maybe you have opportunities where you're in charge in your business or something like that. But who are you raising up? Do, Do you trust others with something that is most precious to you? We can fall into that trap of trying to keep it all to ourselves. Is there any area that God's kind of called you to where you need to challenge people that are on the journey with you more, to take risks with people more? Maybe they're not going to do it great first time. Maybe it's going to bit like fall flat on its face, but are you willing to take risks with people? So letting others have a go is, is risky. Can, it, can be, it can be messy. 
but it's very godly. And so ultimately, you know, Jesus could have, when he came, he could have said, you guys are probably going to mess this thing up. I'm actually just going to, I'm just going to live forever. And then I'm just going to live on the earth. We're going to sort the whole church out and do it all like that. But for multiple reasons, he doesn't actually do that. But the beautiful thing is he invites humanity into this adventure with him. He invites humanity into an adventure to see his kingdom built here in the world. And each single one, each and every one of you, you guys have been invited into an adventure with God in your lives. So lastly, they go to Athens. So see, they do that long journey down to Athens. And Athens is this incredible city, amazing city, a beautiful city. It's uh, the center of learning and culture. It's a city that's full of all kinds of works of art and things like this. It's a city that's so full of statues of gods that Petronius is quoted as saying, it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. That they were literally, it's like, oh man, it's like Hong Kong, but like half the people were statues of gods. And everyone's like weaving through them. And um, this is what it says, Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news and Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul, he's greatly distressed you know, Paul doesn't get distressed that often, does he? I mean, Paul, I think, distresses more people than, than he gets distressed himself. Like, Paul's quite a solid kind of guy, but he gets greatly distressed to see all these statues to gods, to idols. He's there. He's sharing, but he's staying in the city. He's waiting. He sent word for Silas and Timothy to come. He's waiting for them to turn up. He's going around. He's seeing all these different gods. He sees... It, and it makes him distressed. What, why is he distressed? Why is he distressed? Because he sees something that is standing in the place of God. He, he's seeing a barrier that is blocking people and God. There's something standing in the way. There, it, he's there to preach the word, isn't he? He's there to share the gospel with people, to tell them the good news that God and man can be reconnected, in relationship, reunited, that death has been defeated. But these idols stand between God and man. Challenge for us today is, guys, guys, would it disturb us? Do we get disturbed? Are we, are we so passionate about this gospel of seeing people come back to God that, we, that it stirs us, that we get disturbed when we see the idols of this age, of this city, blocking people from God. And for us in Hong Kong, today may not be statues, right? We don't, we don't see people bending down to stone and carved images that much, that often. But there are plenty of idols in this city. It may be money. It may be image. It may be career. It could be status. It could be, it could be identity or something like that. But, you know, if we look... 
for our meaning, if we look for our purpose, if we look for our security in life, if we look for our our self-expression, our identity in life from something other than God, then we've made an idol of it and we worship it. There are plenty of atheists, right, in the world who don't, don't believe in God. That's what atheist means. But actually, they have a God. They worship many different things. Or take, for example, money. They worship money. That they've made money their God. And they may say, well, I haven't. But I'm sure there are many who, if you ask them, okay, well, are your decisions in life guided by money? By what money says and allows you to do? I say, yeah, that is your peace and your comfort in life defined by your bank account and bank balance. That when it's full, you're happy and peaceful. But actually, when it starts getting nearly empty, there's fear that begins to to rise. Often identity, self-worth can be linked, can't it, to the numbers in a bank account. To be like, okay, well, I feel great about myself because I'm a multimillionaire. I've got all this stuff. But actually, I feel rubbish about myself because I, I don't well, we've lost a lot of money. I, I've, there's, there's barely any money there. That you know, for, for, the, for a believer, um, our identity can never be linked to a bank account or a bank statement. It's, our identity is not defined by that. It's defined by what God says about us. It's defined by who we are as children of God, which cannot change, no matter good times or bad times. And so ultimately, people, whatever the idol is, can do everything for it. And when you're living life for that thing, you worship it. So for that person, let's say it's money, the idol stands in the way of God because God isn't the provider. God isn't the sustainer. Where Jesus says, don't be anxious for anything. Well, if, if money is in the way and money goes, then you get anxious. But actually when God's there and you know 100% God's the provider, there is, like Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. And all these kind of things, and I, I, whenever I speak about it, I always share this. They're not bad things. They're great things. They're awesome things, like money and like image and all these kind of things. They're, they're great. But when we make them the ultimate thing, when it becomes an idol, it becomes a terrible thing. And so these statues, Paul is seeing, as he's going around Athens, he's seeing statues of the whole pantheon. So all the different gods you can remember and can't remember from Greek mythology, seeing all these, all these different gods. And he comes across one statue that says, it's the statue to the unknown god. And that statue is kind of a just in case. Like these guys, they've got thousands of statues in the city, and then they've got one for just in case they left out some god they weren't too sure about. And so Paul starts off preaching first in the synagogues, then he goes to the Agora, it's like this marketplace area. People would have spoken and sold and traded stuff there, but also spoken about new different ideas and and things like that in the Agora. And as he's speaking, he's having these discussions, people are overhearing. You've got this group of Epicureans, you've got this group of Stoic philosophers, and they, they begin to have this discussion together where they're like, what on earth is this guy going on about? That's Prattler. Like He's just saying a load of random stuff. We have no idea what he's talking about. Interestingly, this, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're very different, but they um, represent something similar to some of the modern idols 
that we can have, these kind of core ideals and, and beliefs that, that people today can struggle with, that people can make into idols, their pleasure and their pride. So the Epicureans, they were this group of atheists, actually, and they believed that their happiness was the ultimate goal, that the ultimate goal of man was to be happy. That's the Epicureans. That, that pleasure was the, was the kind of, yeah, that, that was the goal, the goal of mankind. And this actually, if you know much about Roman culture, Greek culture, has a load of impacts on, on Greek culture and then spilled over into Roman culture. Some of it great, and we get some lovely things from that. Some of it terrible. And if you know much of the history, it's pretty kind of bad and debauched and all that, that kind of stuff. But as a concept, as a principle, living for happiness is like the opposite to the gospel, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Because, you know, if you apply that globally, well, there would have been a community of cannibals somewhere who, if I was living for happiness, I'd have eaten my neighbor, not loved my neighbor. Things like that. So today, we also are going to meet people who are Epicureans, who it's quite a popular thing these days. Live for happiness. Actually, my ultimate goal, if I'm happy, then that's okay. And we've got a bit of Christianity blended in with that. If I'm happy and doing stuff that makes me happy, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, then it's okay. Pleasure becomes the god. It becomes the idol. Stoics, they're the, basically the complete opposite. The Stoics were very Stoic. And um, they've been called the Pharisees of Greek paganism. So that these guys, they worshipped the Pantheon. They believed in chance and fate, that nothing kind of had design and order. It was just all chance and fate. And ultimately, their highest principle was steadfastness in the face of adversity. Stop being stoic, right? In that steadfastness, they had amazing pride. And that pride was pride in self, that they themselves could be steadfast in the face of challenge. You know, whereas in... For the, for the believer, it is actually our strength is in him. So people from these groups, they're picking up bits of conversation saying, what on earth are you talking about? And this conversation with, the, with these two groups of people leads them to take Paul up to the Areopagus. It's the highest council in the land. It's where various matters were discussed, trials were taking place. And Paul's not on trial here, but it's almost like the gospel is on trial. And it's this amazing opportunity to share the gospel. In, in verses 19-21, it says this. It says, Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They loved, they loved new concepts. They loved new ideas. Athens at this time had lost all its political power, but it was still the center of beauty and culture and art and learning. So the guys there, they thought they were the, like, the learned guys. This is where ideas are born. This is where ideas come and are, and are spoken about. So we then come to Paul's speech. You, you guys would have all heard of like Mars Hill. This is Mars Hill up on the Areopagus. <laughs> it's this, this uh, kind of message that he gives here. It's a fantastic lesson for us, the way that he delivers the message. Delivering the gospel to a non-Jewish audience, this highly educated audience, an audience made up of many atheists that are there. Maybe it can give us some insights into when we share the gospel, when we speak to people about Jesus. So remember, 
right at the beginning, Paul debates, doesn't he, with the Thessalonians in their synagogue and goes into Old Testament scripture and really reasons with these guys, debates with these guys using scripture. We then rock up at Berea. They're all open for it, but spend time studying and looking through all the Old Testament scripture. Now he gets to Athens. He can't use the Old Testament, can he? Because they have no idea what it is. It's not like, well, they know what it is probably, but they don't, they don't know it. Whereas in all the others have grown up knowing it. It's, there's not a connection for them. They've, they've no frame of reference in that. So he needs to present the gospel to this bunch of idol worshippers in a way that these guys can understand, in a way that they can get. And it says this, in verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. He stands up, he's polite, you know, he's confrontational. Do that. Be nice to people when you're sharing the gospel with them. It's good news. You know, we don't need sin, sin, sin. You know, you're all sinners. You know, that kind of like fire and brimstone, fire and brimstone uh, sharing hasn't worked for very long. So he doesn't as well here just start with Jesus. He doesn't go, well, there's this guy and start explaining that. He leads them from a place of where they're at and he makes it relevant to them. He kind of lays the road out down to their feet that they can then walk along into the gospel. He makes it relevant to these guys. And so when you think to share the gospel, think about where your starting point is. Think about where the person is you're sharing with. Where are they? You know, where are they at? Some people here maybe have grown up in church and really know the Bible quite well, and you can share more biblical stuff. Some people maybe have no idea who Jesus actually is. So it needs to be a point that draws the listener into what that you're saying so that they can relate to it in some senses. And this is what Paul says in verse 23. He says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. You know, he finds this door masterfully. That's absolutely, like, it's incredible. So he speaks about something that's in their culture, in their understanding, in their setting. They obviously, there are obviously people there who are like, well, actually, there may be, there are, there are other gods that we need, to, we need to be careful of, you know, that we need to kind of appease and, and worship. And Paul, with amazing skill, says, this is what I'm speaking about, and then begins to draw them from their world and their understanding into the gospel. Uh-oh. And then it says this in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This statement it, for us, as like a Judeo-Christian mindset, seems pretty normal, right? Seems pretty acceptable. For the Greeks, would have completely messed them up, would have completely blown their minds. It would have blown their mind that the earth wasn't just coming out of this thing of chaos, but that actually that it had a benevolent creator, that mankind's life wasn't just a thing of fate, this kind of play things for the gods, 
but that actually that there was some form of design and that there was a creator and a creation like that. And God, that God, within that, that God wanted a relationship with mankind. That would have been insane. Because whilst in Greek understanding, you know, man was made, that they're not made for deep relationship, loving relationship with God. That the Greek, the kind of capricious nature of Greek gods, that it would have completely changed and impacted and challenged their view of God. And also that God isn't served by human hands as if he needed our worship. There's another huge paradigm shift for them, that God doesn't live in a temple, right? That's just, that, what, what do you mean? Like we have the stone and we have the temple and of course God needs to live in a temple. He's challenging them. So he finds them, but he, he finds them where they're at, draws them into the story, but then also challenges their worldview. And then Paul does this thing, which is just amazing. He uses pagan poetry that would have been familiar to those guys to communicate the truth of the gospel that he's talking about. And it's epic. What he does here is just completely masterful. And he, he says this quote from Epimedes and Aristus, they're famous Greek poets writing about the gods of the pantheon. I think it's talk, talking about Zeus. And in verse 28, it says this, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Those two quotes, this pagan poetry that he's using, what can we use to communicate the gospel in our setting? See, are there things from popular culture, things that, that, that you know that you can help, that people kind of get and understand that we can use to communicate the gospel to people? And kind of continuing, Paul bouncing off that quote, which says, we are his offspring, Paul then says, therefore, since we are his offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. These guys who are around Paul, they're not just anybody. They feel like they're the most educated guys in the world. Like Athens is the center of learning on earth. They pride themselves on their learning. And Paul basically here is saying, you know, worshiping a bit of stone is stupid. It's ignorant. Because he says that God in times past has overlooked that ignorance. But now he calls people to repent. So it challenges them. It challenges something that's very real to them. And pro most likely, many of them knew, okay, well, that bit of stone isn't a god. Because these guys are very learned guys. And so he calls them to repentance. And literally, repentance means to change your mind, to change your perspective. It's not saying sorry. It's like there's an act of sorrow. It can be an act of sorrow in it. But it's about changing your mind, changing your direction, taking on board a new perspective. Again, masterful, because the Athenians are all about hearing new ideas, taking on new ideas, walking in new thoughts, new ways. Challenge for you guys is we can't share the gospel without calling people to repentance. You know, we can share the gospel and share the truth of it all, but also, you know, ask the question, do you want to walk in this? Do you want to accept Jesus? Do you want to make him king? Whatever works for, your, for the setting that, that you're in. Because it's not just information that you're telling them about some kind of philosophy. It is a truth 
that transforms life. And it's that faith, that walking out in it, that starting the journey with Jesus, that stepping out in it that begins that transformation. So Paul then continues, for he is set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. For the Greek mind, okay, for the Greek mind, resurrection is super challenging. They believed that the soul was perfect, everything spiritual was perfect and beautiful, and everything physical was dirty and evil and not great. And so for those guys, it's very hard, very hard to imagine the, you know, a Christian, the Christian story, which is actually, there will be a bodily resurrection. We'll, we'll live on a new earth, a new heaven. We'll, we'll have these new bodies and we'll work and eat and do life. So for these guys, which saw more of a spiritual kind of afterlife, very, very challenging, very challenging. And the idea of resurrection would have grated with them. And some of them sneer at Paul. And so this issue, it looks like Paul's actually got more to say. But this issue kind of shuts things down slightly there. And then people speak up and say, look, we want to hear some more on the subject. Some sneer. Some say, uh, OK, we'll hear some more on it. Some people are not gripped at all. And then there are these people there who they're, they're interested in the ideas, but their hearts haven't been touched. But then there are those whose hearts have been completely transformed, and they come and they become a follower of Jesus. In Acts 33, it says, At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of, of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Paul shares wonderfully here then, you see, he does this amazing preach or sharing, okay? He does this amazing kind of stand-up talk, evangelism. Some sneer. Some people are kind of indifferent. They're, mentally, they get it, but it's not dropped to their heart. And some people, they're cut to the heart, and they say, they become followers of Jesus. This chapter starts with Paul preaching to a bunch of idol worshippers, and it ends with Paul preaching to a bunch of idol worshippers, doesn't it? But the idol-worshipping Thessalonians, they serve God, they repent, their lives turn around in such a way as a church that they become famous for it. In Athens... We never actually hear about those guys again. We, we don't really hear of how far their impact was. We know that the Thessalonians, despite the persecution, becomes this region-impacting church. And so, guys, the encouragement, just to end with, is really share the, the good news of God. So have a think this week on how best to communicate the good news. I don't find it simple. You know, I, I don't find it easy. Sometimes it can be scary, right? But always be ready to share. And the challenge I want to give to you guys is each of us work in different settings, some more expat settings, some of us, some of us with adults, some with, some, sometimes with younger people, sometimes it's um, in a very local, sort of local Hong Kong setting. Take the time this week, maybe in your early morning prayer times as well, take the time to pray and hear from God how to communicate the gospel relevantly to certain people in your life, to certain maybe groups of people in your life. How 
Can you communicate the gospel so you meet them where they're at culturally, where they're at in their understanding, to draw them into to the gospel? What's going to speak to those guys? What would draw them into the story of the gospel? Father God, Lord, I thank you, God, for... I thank you... I thank you, God, for from what we learn from those three from those three cities, Lord. Lord, I pray for each of us, God, that you would just fill us afresh, God, just with the spirit of being able to communicate your good news to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us Holy Spirit, give us insight and wisdom into the people that are close around us, Lord, that, that it wouldn't seem when we share the truth that it's some kind of weird, disconnected, ancient, religious thing, but that it's something now, as it is now and living, God, you're on a throne in heaven, Jesus. And I, I pray for each of us, Lord, that you would give us that wisdom and insight on how to share the gospel in a way that leads people from their context, where they're at, Lord, so that we can open their eyes, Lord, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and he paid the ultimate price, that he died on a cross so that they in their context, whatever it is, whatever their situation is, could be drawn into a relationship with him, a relationship of love and peace and joy, God. And for those of us, God, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that if we do get pushed back, if we are persecuted, if we do suffer, God, Lord, let your Holy Spirit raise that joy in us, Lord. Raise that joy in us, Lord, that the gospel is being preached. Lord, as we just go out as well into our weeks, Jesus, I just pray a blessing, Lord, on every single person here, that your peace, the peace of the Prince of Peace, Lord, would just be upon and through every single one of us, Jesus. In your name, amen.